Psalm chapter 16. Um, as you guys know, uh, in my personal life, in the last couple of weeks, um, death has been something that has just been something I, I couldn't avoid and could not deal with um, in my own family. And, and just reaching out and talking to a lot of my pastor friends that I get counsel from and encouragement from, um, it has just been a season of death for pretty much everybody in my friend group. Um, so normally the people I go to for encouragement were kind of like, yeah, we're, we're struggling too. Um, and uh, and when, I, when I think about death, and, and I don't know about you guys, you probably try to avoid thinking about death as much as you possibly can if you're like most people. Um, one of the places my mind always goes back to is uh, being a young pastor. The first funeral I had to do was for my grandmother. And my grandmother was the one that uh, primarily, you know, would take us to church. We would go clean the church with her and mow with my grandfather. And um, they just, you know, were, were very influential in my life when it comes to faith. And, and I remember being a young pastor, um, just new to everything, and going and, and meeting with my grandmother uh, in the hospital and talking with her. And she flat out told me, I'm going to die. And I was like, no, 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 you're not. You know, again, young pastor, I'm new at this. I'm like, pretty sure I'm supposed to encourage her right now. Uh, they didn't have any of this in the textbooks, but, you know, surely I'm supposed to encourage her. And she said, listen, I'm, I'm going to die. And I said, yeah, we're all going to die one day. She said, you don't understand me. I'm going to die in the next few days. She said, I'm, I'm going to do this surgery that your aunt, her daughter, wanted her to do because she didn't want her to have any regrets. But she told me, I'm not going to make it. This is it. And then she proceeded to tell me, this is what I want you to say at my funeral. This is what I want you to do. And, you know, again, as a young pastor, it was like, well, let me take some notes, I guess. Like, and, and I was, I, I still, to this day, have always been amazed by her confidence in the face of death, right? Like, there's confidence in your faith when you're young and you're healthy and everything is good. Then there's confidence in your faith when you're older and things aren't as good and things are starting to break, right? But that, it, it's, it's a different kind of confidence when you're looking, going, you know what, in three days I'm going to die. But being perfectly at peace about it. Knowing 100% with all the confidence she had in her body what was going to happen next. And she wasn't afraid. She wasn't upset. She wasn't angry. And she, she may have gone through all those things, and I just didn't see it. But at that moment, her confidence was in Christ. And I think about that, and that makes me reflect back on Jesus' confidence. As he walked to the earth, and I, and I often wonder what he must have been thinking because she knew that week that, you know, within the next week she was going to die. But from the time in which Jesus' mind was able to know, he knew he was going to die. He knew why he was going to die. 
He knew when he was going to die. He knew the method that he was going to die. He tells the disciples that he's going to die. And he has this confidence about him that carries him through the day. And I often wonder, like, what was going on in his mind? What was he thinking? And this morning, Psalm 16 is going to give us insight into the mind of Christ and what he was thinking and how he had this confidence in light of death. Now, this psalm is often referred to as the Easter psalm. If you're taking notes, this is one of those things that um, because it was preached uh, on Easter by Peter, and then later Paul used this psalm to talk about the resurrection from Scripture. We see this in, from Peter in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 28, when he says, For David says concerning him, again talking about this psalm, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter concludes this section in verses 33 through 32 saying, Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Now there in verse 30, being therefore a prophet. So in Psalm 16, David isn't talking about David. David is being a prophet, talking about God's Holy One that would come. And, and that's important as we go through this psalm this morning, that it's important that you understand that it's primarily has nothing to do with David. Letting Scripture interpret Scripture, it tells us that this is a prophecy about God's Holy One. Likewise, we see Paul interpreting this psalm the same way in Acts 13, 32 through 33. And then again in 35 through 37, he says this, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he was spoken in this way, I will give you, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Verse 35, therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For God, after he had served the purpose, or excuse me, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption, right? So Paul's making this argument that this psalm can't be about David, because David went to the grave, and his body saw corruption. It, the flesh rotted away, right? But Paul says there was this one man named Jesus, and he, he didn't stay long enough to see the corruption of the body. And so both Peter and, and Paul read Psalm 16 as directly about 
Jesus. And again, that's important for us this morning now as we start to look at this psalm that we understand what is being discussed. And it helps us this morning as we look at psalm through the apostles' point of view. Instead of focusing on this psalm, uh, focusing on David, we need to shift our focus to Jesus. Therefore, David, as a prophet, is giving us insight this morning into the inner thoughts of Jesus. When David is using I or me, he's speaking of Jesus. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David wants us to understand how Jesus could have been so brave even as he was facing his crucifixion. Psalm 16 is one of those unique passages that gives us a window into the soul of our Savior. The Holy Spirit recorded this so that we also could be strengthened in our hearts in these unsteady times we find ourselves living in. I'm willing to bet that like my pastor friends and myself, we're not the only ones surrounded by death. So many people are struggling with the loss of loved ones. Some are struggling with the loss themselves, that, that potentially it could be them next. And the Holy Spirit this morning is giving us this insight so that well, it can help us to have confident, confidence even in the face of death. And this morning, as we read this text together, I think the best way that I found in studying this week to break it down is this. First, I want you to see Jesus' commitment in verses 1 through 3. Second, I want you to see Jesus' contentment in verses 4 through 8. And then finally, Jesus' confidence in verses 9 through 11. So we're going to look at his commitment, his contentment, and his confidence. And my goal this morning, as one commentator succinctly put it as, as follows, commitment to God brings contentment in God. And that leads to confidence in God. Commitment to God brings contentment in God, which leads to confidence to God. So let's read our psalm together this morning as a church. This one's a little bit longer, but not too bad. So we're going to read it together. One, two, three. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places indeed. I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. 
my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. So let's look at this psalm, and like I said, we're going to break it down with these three sections. First, starting with Jesus' commitment. And we see that right away in this psalm with the very first two words, preserve me. And that word there means to watch over, to care for. Now, this, this would have been a concept that David would have been keenly familiar with because he was a shepherd as he was growing up. And what do shepherds do? They, they care for their flock. They watch over their flock. They're looking for attacks from enemies that are coming from without, but they're also looking for attacks that come from within because sheep are dumb, Right? They will fall into holes and walk off of cliffs and just wander off by themselves. And the shepherd is there, and he is keeping watch over his flock, not only against the wolves that might try to take them, but also from themselves. And that's, that's what David is saying. Preserve me. Watch over me, Lord. David understands his own heart, that not only does he need protection from attacks that are coming from outside of him, but he also needs protection from his own heart and his own sinful actions and mistakes that he tends to make. So he's protecting from something harming them, but also from self-harm. Jesus, likewise, was trusting God to watch over him. Every step in his earthly life. Second, this psalm shows us that God should be our only refuge. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now the idea here with refuge is that of, for those of you who have children, right? And you go into a strange situation and the child is scared, what do they do? They get behind you, right? They put you in between the perceived threat, whether it really is one or not, between that and themselves, they put you in the middle. And, and that's what David is saying that God will do for his Holy One here, is that God will stand in the middle. He will protect him. Now, this may seem strange to those of you who know much about David's life. And for those of you who don't know a lot about David's life, again, David grew up as a shepherd. He grew up protecting and killing wild animals from taking the sheep. David was also often the one in between the sheep and the thing attacking the sheep, right? That was him as a teenager, a young boy. And then while he's running his lunchbox to his brothers who forgot it at the battle, right? There's this tall Goliath of a man taunting the nation of Israel and David's walking up with a slingshot going, I can take that guy. Right? And then, as David was a mighty army in Saul's army, that he, he killed so many people, he was so victorious that they were singing songs about him. Because he was such a man's man, if you will. 
Then when he was on the run from Saul, he's leading a small army of special forces people, avoiding the king and doing what he has to do to survive. Right? This was a, this was a man who knew how to survive, who knew how to take care of himself. And yet, here, he's saying, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. The most manly of men is saying, I'm hiding behind God. I'm taking refuge in Him. Hereby telling us that one of the most manliest things we can do, men, is to take refuge in God. For too many of us, taking refuge in God is our last option, not our first option. It's our last option. After we have tried everything else we can possibly do, then we take refuge with God, right? Then we pray, oh God, help me. <laughs> I've messed this up royally. Now I need you to protect me. And David is saying, look, the most manliest thing a man can do, the most womanly thing a woman can do, is to take refuge in God. And I get it. It's hard because we live in a culture in America that teaches us the exact opposite. America teaches us to be self-reliant, to not depend or rely on anyone else. Often, even if you are viewed as depending on someone else, you are viewed as weak. We often view those who turn to God as their refuge as weak, even. And yet the psalm reminds us that it takes immense courage to trust in God and to say, preserve me, O Lord, for in you I take refuge. And Jesus banked everything on God's protection. He literally put his life in God's hands. Jesus did that because he knew that God was good. Look at what verse 2 says. I say to you, Lord, you are my God. I have no good, no good, none apart from you. Now, that's important this morning that, that those of us who call ourselves believers are convinced that we serve a good God. All kinds of problems and struggles with our faith will occur if we do not believe that God is good. If even the slightest little bit of doubt starts to creep into our minds, we are headed for trouble. If we have anything good in our lives, it is from God and Him alone. As we're reminded in James chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. And the essence of all sin, this is important, guys, the essence of all sin is looking for good outside of God's provision and will. When you peel back the layers of any sin, what you're going to find is that you are looking for good outside of God's provision and His will. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean by that. When a person turns to pornography or an affair. They are looking for a good thing. 
According to the Bible, sexual intimacy is a good thing. But they are looking for it apart from God's will. God's good way is through monogamous, heterosexual marriage. So they're looking for a good thing, but they're doing it in a way that goes against God's way, and therefore it becomes sin. Last week we talked about slander and gossip in the message, right? Those of you who can remember that far back. What's at the core of gossip and slander? Have you ever thought about that? You want to feel important. I know something everybody else doesn't know. Now, is there anything wrong with wanting to feel important? No, not in and of itself. But when we go about it in the way of gossip and slander, we're, we're trying to make ourselves look like we know. We look like we are important, and that's not the way that God would have us to do that. Instead, if you want to feel important, one should remind oneself that they are made in the very image of God. We're it. Nothing else in this world is made in His image. We are important. We are different. We are unique in that sense. But not only that, Jesus died to redeem you. That should make you feel pretty important too. See, when we look for importance the way God wants us to, there's nothing wrong with it. But when we start looking for other ways to attain it and achieve it, then it becomes sin. That's why I say the essence of all sin is, is trying to attain something in a way that God doesn't want us to. Sin is, is trying to achieve something good apart from God and His ways. The good thing may be family, security, significance, justice, pleasure, or some other physical need. But when we try to obtain it through ungodly ways, it turns into idols. And the minute it becomes an idol, we become enslaved to it. This morning, you will not be able to willingly commit yourself to God until you believe that he is the only good. This was Jesus' commitment, and it needs to be our commitment that, that the only good that we have in our lives, the only thing good about us, comes from God. Then in verse 3, we see Jesus' commitment to God extends not only to God, but it extends to his people. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. If we love God, we will love his people, as 1 John 5.1 says. There are so many people that I love that I never thought I would have ever loved. Me and Brian have talked about this before, but like Brian and Melissa, like, man, they didn't even know what barbecue was. Right? Like, I, I didn't think I could hang out with these people. 
much less be friends with them and, and love them and, and can't imagine not doing life with them. Because they were so different, right? And those of you who don't know, but they were from, I got corrected this morning, they're from like the northern area. I don't, I don't know how I should say that because to southern, well, that, 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 see, that's offensive though, Lynn. We have to be careful because not, not everybody from above that line. <laughs> but, but they come from a different culture. They, they ate different foods. They did different things. Totally not someone I thought I would ever want to spend time with. And, and, and there's no offense to them. They're great people, but just we just didn't have things in common. And yet, because of the gospel, because of God's grace in their life and in my life, that, that has enabled us to not only become friends, but to, to love one another, to care for one another. And apart from the gospel, I doubt we would have ever spent any time together. Yet because of the gospel, I can't imagine my life without them. And like Jesus, when, when we are committed to a good God, we are committed to his good people. And Jesus' commitment to God then leads to contentment with God. Trusting in God leads to life and joy. And again, when I talk to people throughout the week, this is a struggle for a lot of people. They find it hard to have a life of joy. And I think verse 4 tells us the main reason why so many people struggle. It says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out or take their names on my lip. David wants us to see that Jesus and our contentment starts by being able to say no. Contentment starts by being able to say no to things. And David is able to say no to these things. We cannot genuinely enjoy God if we are trying to play both sides. You can't sit there and say, oh, only God is good, but I want to do these other things too. You are never going to have a life of joy. You are always going to struggle. You cannot hedge your bets when it comes to God. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He is an all-or-nothing God. right? He's pretty clear about that in the commandments. You shall have no other God but me. David knows this and wants nothing to do with pagan gods and their rituals. The key to finding joy in God starts, it starts by being able to say no to the world and yes to God. Christianity isn't just a no religion. Don't, don't mishear me, but you've got to understand that's where joy starts is by saying no to certain things and by saying yes to God. When we are content in God, it becomes easier to say no to the world. Listen to how David describes that contentment in verses 5 through 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places indeed. I have a beautiful inheritance. I've always loved that verse. And the more I dug into it this week, the more I loved it. Because what he's referring to here 
is when every one of the tribes went into the promised land and they divided up the land and everyone got their portion. Every tribe got their place and they marked it out with boundaries and drew lines around it and said, this is your area. This is your area. Every tribe received a portion of the land except for one. One didn't. The Levites. Here's why. This is what God told the Levites in Numbers 18.20. You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Jesus said, look, or God said, all these other tribes, they're getting a little piece of land, but you, you get me. I'm your inheritance. And, and David, hearkening back to that, is, is thinking back, and here we find him describing this inheritance that, that he counts as the biggest blessing, the best inheritance ever, and it's not a piece of dirt. It's not some property. It's not some stuff in this world. It's God himself. You want to understand what gave Jesus so much confidence walking this earth, walking to the cross? He knew what his inheritance was. He knew without a shadow of a doubt that his father was his inheritance. Jesus' inheritance was God himself. And this is also our inheritance for every one of us who know Jesus. Psalm 73, 25 through 26 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fall or fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the greatest gift we could ever get. God himself. And as believers... God has placed the Holy Spirit within us. He, he has given us a down payment or a deposit, if you will, of himself in our hearts. Until that day that we have our complete and ultimate inheritance with him. We get to experience God not only in the present or, or, or in the future, but in the present right now. And we also see that in verses 7 through 8. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. God gives us two gifts here. He gives us his counsel and his presence. Being a good father, the way God is a good father, it's not enough for God to just say, you know what? I'm giving you myself. Right? How, how many of you guys, so, so say Christmas morning rolls around and your children wake up, how many of y'all put a bow on your head and look at your kids and say, you, you, you won. You won the lottery, man. You got me. That's not, no, we, we give our children things because we love them. 
Because we care about them. The same goes with God. It, it would have been enough for God to say, just me. But being the good father, he gives more. He gives us his counsel. He gives us his presence. That he wants us to enjoy the same way Jesus did. Jesus' commitment and his contentment with God. It led to his confidence in God. Faith comes from setting our hearts fully on God and being satisfied with him. We see this confidence in Jesus' resurrection prophesied here in verse 9 and 10. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Why? Why, Jesus? Why do you have all of this confidence? Verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Here we have it. Peter and Paul tells us this is, this is Jesus he's talking about here. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about Jesus, God's Holy One. David was prophesying that Jesus must die, but that God would not let him remain abandoned even in death. Jesus told his disciples this would happen. Go back and read Mark chapter 9. He just tells them flat out, this is what has to happen. Jesus knew. We see this amazing confidence that Jesus has even in the face of dying. What was even more amazing than his confidence was that it was true. God raised him from the dead on the third day. That, that's even more. I mean, the confidence is amazing. But it's even more amazing that it was true. This should give us the power to trust God even in the face of death by trusting in the fact that God is good and what His Word says, He will not abandon us to the grave. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last tr trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 52. We have confidence in God because we know that he is good and death is not the end. It wasn't the end for Jesus and it won't be the end for you. This psalm ends with a promise that not only will God deliver Jesus from death, but will bless him with life in his presence. You make known to me, verse 11, the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The path of life leads through death to everlasting joy with God. And those who put their faith in Jesus will let go, will, will get to go for all eternity to heaven. What could be better? What could be better? This morning, do you struggle to be confident with God? Even in the face of death. 
I encourage you, commit yourself to Him. Find your contentment in Him. And I promise you, you will have the same confidence that Jesus had as He made His way to the cross to die for you so that you might be a part of this promise. Because listen, we in and of ourselves cannot save ourselves. And God knew that and made provision for that and sent his son to die for that. You may be sitting here this morning going, yeah, but you don't know how bad I am. It doesn't matter. God was better. Jesus was better. And he's offering that salvation to you this morning. If you would follow him, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this psalm. Thank you for giving us insight into Jesus' mind. For understanding and seeing, God, just, just how much confidence he had in you. Lord, I pray this morning that we would be a church full of confident people. Not confident in ourselves, but confident in your goodness, God. And Lord, that confidence would lead us to tell others about you and your son and what you have done for us. And Father, I pray this morning for anyone here that does not know you, that today would be the day that they would acknowledge their need for a Savior. They would acknowledge that they can't save themselves. Lord, and they would accept the free gift, of, free gift of salvation that comes through your Son, Jesus Christ. And they would put their faith and trust in his finished work. And in his resurrection, Lord, they would now have hope of that same resurrection. To be with you forever. To inherit you, the greatest of all inheritances. Father, I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.